Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease. I'm one of the members here at uh, Redeemer, and I also, uh, with a great team, volunteer with our student ministry. So typically, Sundays after Thanksgiving, you get the youth guy. Um, so you're welcome. Uh, but if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're going to see Jesus in a humiliating posture that causes confusion and conviction for his disciples. Because after all, people, when they were looking for a Messiah, as we enter into the Advent season of the expectation of the coming of Christ, but also the return of Christ, the people of God were waiting for a warrior king to come and deliver them from the oppressive leadership of the Roman Empire. And even his disciples throughout their time with Jesus would often get confused by his activities and his actions and what he said. At times, his aversion to building his own momentum and fame, but to going a different place. They watched him heal the sick and raise the dead. He, they saw him feed thousands upon thousands of people. They saw him have authority over demons, authority over storms, authority over the religious. And they were long awaiting this warrior king to come into his own, that they might be able to sit at his right hand and his left hand to have power and dominion over all people. However... As the prophets foretold, the Messiah would come, would be a suffering servant. He would come as a servant for all. In fact, he actually came and lived and died and rose again, not for his friends, but actually for his enemies. That through his life, his death, his resurrection, the adoption of sinners to the kingdom of God, by the grace of God, for the glory of God, was possible. And so often when we talk in the church about following Jesus and following Christ, I think there's a misunderstanding that I'm even guilty of. Because most of us, if, if, if we're honest, orient our lives seeking comfort, seeking status, and seeking security. Our natural bent as humans is to seek comfort and status and security. The disciples were aligning themselves with this warrior king they were hoping for to secure for them comfort, status, and security. Maybe I'm alone, but that sounds right. I mean, think about how we orient our lives and our budgets and our, our choices and where we live. I often tease fellow parents that we become functional atheists when it comes to the future of our children. That we trust God to provide for all things, but if they don't do 18 AP classes, then they are going to be poor and homeless and maybe die and go to prison or something. But, but in the same way that these disciples were longing for comfort, status, and security, oftentimes we orient our lives and our faith in the same way. Again, that's my default. I'm, I'm coming here as a fellow brother in Christ here at Redeemer Church saying, that's my default. If I work with my hands, I like to get gloves. I'm a soft-handed man, so I don't want to get all gritty. But our Savior leads a different way, and after all, discipleship, the aim of discipleship isn't just behavior modification. The aim of discipleship is conformity to the image of Christ, to become more like Jesus. And so that should at least cause a little discontent and discomfort in our souls. I know it does for me. And so I come here today not as one who has it all figured out, by no means, but as one who longs with you, as, as believers in Christ, to journey together towards deeper intimacy with God, 
towards deeper obedience to his way, to live in such a counterculture way that is not repelling, but rather inviting. So if, if you open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in John chapter 13. It'll also be on the screens. And then we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, just to, to give some, some, some context, I'm not a feet person. Some of y'all might be foot people. You like feet. I don't like feet. I don't like my own feet. I don't like other people's feet. I love my wife's feet, and that's a God-ordained supernatural gift given to me. And I tolerate my children's feet. You'll notice me on Monday, Thursday here at the church. I stayed away from the foot washing station. I allowed the Lord to spiritually wash me and wash my feet. I'm not a foot person. I don't like this passage primarily because of the feet. However, the lessons that we see our Savior, not just through his words, but through his activity, gives us a roadmap for how we then can serve because churches in America often are consumer-driven. We want to provide you with things to consume, things to have, things to keep you around, and then when we don't have that any longer, you just bounce to the next church that's peddling something better. When I was pastoring in the Woodlands area, if you ever heard of the Woodlands, um, it's, a, it's a, like a hyperly focused, organized community. They call it the bubble for good reason. And when we planted a church, we met in a private school. It was a newly constructed private school. But like our children's ministry rooms had like, we bring stuff out in bins and put it out. And like you get your kids get some checks mix or something and a coloring sheet. And that was it. And then like a mile and a half down the road, we had a church that like Disney consultants came and helped design their children's building. Multi-million dollar kid space. And guess what people care about? Their kids. And so it took a lot of work for kids to say, hey, I want to go back there. When they could go there. But Jesus doesn't call us to consume. And, and the reality is, if you think about how we live in Christian community and culture, we're, we're, we're kind of bent towards con consumption rather than consistency. We're bent towards consumption rather than service. We approach our quiet time hoping to get that one last Holy Spirit bump to get us over the day when really our faith is not just something to be felt, it's actually based upon a person to be known. And so as we get to know this Jesus, as we observe this Jesus and we follow him, he calls us to live sacrificially in service to him by serving others. So the main point I want to hit on this morning is this. Following Jesus is an invitation to know him through loving and serving others. Your service to others is actually one of the ways we grow in intimacy in knowing Christ. Because after all, he led the way by giving ultimate service to others. So in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So at this point, he knew how the story would end. At this point, he understood he would be betrayed by someone around that table. By this point, I would say him being God and being man, he knew who it was that was going to betray him. Knowing that the time had come. For no one takes his life, he says earlier in John, but he'll give it up freely. 
knowing that the time was coming that the Father had appointed for his life to be given as a ransom for you and I, his time had come. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And, and this love was expressed, ultimately we see on the cross, but paving the way in this moment. So, verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. So he wasn't on the fence. He was already decided. Judas had already set his mind on doing what he was going to do. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. At this point, he understands everything that belongs to God belongs to him. All the power that belongs to God belongs to him. Now, while he was a big theological term, functionally subordinated, meaning limited by the confines of his flesh in human form, everything that was God's was his. Yet this is how he chose to respond. Not with power, not with rebuke, not with fortune-telling, but with humility. He rose from supper. He had laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So we see Jesus in tune with the Father's will. The Father's will in this moment wasn't comfort or status or security. The Father's will was not power or lordship or dominion. The Father's will was taking the form of a slave girl, the lowest of low. So based upon the Father's will, compelled by the love for His disciples, He took upon Him this deeply humiliating posture. While the Father had given him all things in his hands, the way that he exercised his power was through a shameful exercise of doing something that was below the lowest of the low. In fact, rabbis were humble people. They would live humility out. In fact, there's a rabbi in the 2nd century or 3rd century A.D. that was known by his humility and service, yet he would not give up his status at the table. Status was key. While he wanted to model humility, he was not going to give it up. Jesus didn't just condescend a little, he condescended all the way. Now you'll hear some commentators, they'll want to say that these men's feet were covered in dung. But remember, they're having a Passover meal, so there was some cleaning required ahead of time. And the roads where they were traveling in this part of Jerusalem probably weren't the, the most filthy that they could be. But it was still, these men walked with sandals on dirty roads. It was dusty and filthy. And the, the, the function of what he was doing was humiliating. And so he takes this posture. While Judas has already resolved to betray him. Because, quite honestly, Jesus could have said, Hey, Judas, I, I want you to go ahead and leave. I know what you're up to. And proceeded. But he washed his feet. And then later in the passage, you see, he's been given the Lord's Supper. Or earlier in the passage, he's been given the Lord's Supper. So maybe you're struggling with an enemy right now or someone who's not, you're at odds. Then perhaps this passage should be a reminder to us, our posture towards them. Or perhaps you're at odds with God because of your sin and disobedience and rebellion and running away. 
Let this be an invitation to you to come back to God through his son Jesus. He humbly served everyone at the table. And he washed their feet. And as humiliating as washing the feet of others is, this is nothing compared to the impending humiliation of being beaten and crucified for something that he did not do. The humiliation of taking upon him the curse of God for sin of mankind. This was merely just one other step towards a foreshadowing of his humiliation on the cross. Pick up in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I love Peter. I can relate to Peter. He's a go-getter. He's an achiever. He is going after it. He wants to please. He wants to win. There was a time Jesus was in a boat with his disciples, or actually his disciples were in a boat, and Jesus was on the water walking toward them, and Peter looks out, and the disciples look out, and they're all scared, and Peter says, Lord, can I come out there with you? And Jesus says, yeah, come on. And he gets out, and he starts walking on the water, and then he notices these humongous waves, and he doesn't have his floaties. He takes his eyes off Jesus, begins to sink, gets back in the boat. Jesus rebukes him. And everyone's like, oh, Peter had little faith. What about the other 11 jokers still in the boat? Those guys are like, nuh-uh. Peter's like, I'll come. You see in Mark chapter 8 and in the Gospels where where Jesus is like, who do you say that I am? And and Peter's like, you're the Christ. And then Jesus explains it. And and then Peter doesn't like the explanation. He's like, no, you're kind of wrong what that means, Christ. Here's what it means. And he corrects them. Later when they're praying in the garden and and, and the people come to arrest Jesus, Peter grabs a sword and chops off Malchus' ear, trying to protect his boss. Jesus says, no, don't do that. After the resurrection, we see Peter in Galatia with Paul being called out for acting racist by preferring Jewish Christians over non-Jewish Christians. I like the guy. Not because he does those things, but I... Well-intended, poor effect? Anyone? Great intention, bad results. We see him deny Jesus three times after Jesus told him he wouldn't, he swore he wouldn't. We see him lack belief in going back to work as a fisherman because he thought the story was over. So when he comes to this place and Jesus is taking this humiliating form, Peter, who self-proclaimed right-hand man, the body man of Jesus, was like, no, 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 time out. You're not doing that to me. And Jesus warns him or tells him, like, hey, you don't understand what I'm doing. And later you'll you'll understand, you'll you'll get it. As the story unfolds, you need to trust me, Peter. You need to trust me. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't wash you, there's no place with me. So Peter, while not the sharpest tack, picks up on what Jesus is putting down. Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Give me the full sponge bath. I want everything. If I want to be with you and you have to cleanse me, let's do the whole thing. Let's clean it up. And Jesus, patient Jesus. I mean, he's washing the guy's feet, and the guy's like, do all of it. (laughs) 
Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. So he's, he's building this case of illustration and proaction and, and, and illustrating to his disciples what it means to really serve what it means to really glorify God, what it means to rightly assess ourselves in comparison to the holiness and power of God. Pick up with me in verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place, and he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you want a blessing today, church? Blessed are you if you do them. You know what's greater than just being blessed with stuff and land like the Old Covenant promised? It's being blessed with the intimacy and power of God through His Son, Jesus. Testified to us by the presence of His Holy Spirit, informed by His Word. His explanation is something that helps them to begin to not only just see what's happening then, but also to have a grid of what will happen in the next several hours and days. He's preparing them. He's modeling for them. He's telling them. He's showing them. He's humbling himself to a point of servitude. And he says this, I'm not speaking to, of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. The purpose ultimately throughout the Gospel of John and all that Jesus is doing is ultimately for belief in Jesus. After all, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 3 says, For this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That we might know God, we might believe in God. This humiliation isn't for humiliation's sake. This humiliation isn't so that Jesus could look better to his disciples or you know, calm them down. This humiliation was part of an education of the pathway towards real intimacy and joy and power in eternity through relationship and belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that by his death and resurrection we might be healed and reconnected with the Father who is life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And as he prepares them for his betrayal, he's reminding them that the goal and aim of the kingdom of God 
is intimacy with God that empowers us towards love and service towards others. Look, we can serve without knowing God, but quite honestly, as we serve without knowing God in the hopes of becoming a good person, the standard then of righteousness and glory is no longer compared to the righteousness and glory of God, the standard by which God compares, but rather against ourselves and what we see in the mirror. And so therefore our good deeds then become ways for us to believe that we're earning some sort of righteousness with God compared to ourselves. And therefore our acts of service outside of obedience and faith and response to the grace and gift of God is no longer about serving as a thank you to God who has given everything for us, but rather as a means for us to attain some sort of self-gratification and being a good person. And it doesn't mean you can't feel good when you're serving. But the aim of serving isn't somehow to keep up economy. If, if my daughter Braylon came to me and said, Daddy, I want you to know I'm going to try really hard to obey today and I'm going to do my chores so that you will love me, that would break my heart. If nothing else, I hope our children know that we love them because simply they're ours. And when they obey and when they clean their room, well, it's appreciated. And if you want to continue to live under my roof, it's expected. It's not con- my love's not contingent on those things. And we view God that way. We're going to do for God because God's done for me like this transactional thing. Remember, the ultimate transaction of Christ on the cross was a sufficient transaction so that once again we can relate. And so that when we take a posture of servitude and we serve, we do so so that we might know Christ more that we might be reminded that our, 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 our plight for comfort and security and status is one that the world guides us towards, but robs us from the joy there is to be had in knowing God. He says in verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Even in this moment when Jesus will be betrayed, God is not out of control. The sovereign Lord, the King of Kings, is not about to be defeated by the plight of the enemy, but rather God's prophecies will be fulfilled through the free agency or broken agency of a sinful man doing what he freely wills and desires to do. But Jesus, His plan is not thwarted. His kingdom is not overruled. His plan isn't broken. He is walking the path that God set out beforehand, preparing His disciples for what it is will come. I want to say, my family and I have been back here in Brenham almost a year, been coming back to this church, joined the church again about a year ago, this month. I can't tell you how encouraged I am both from a pastoral ministry background and just as a church member, to see how many of you are actively engaged in serving. And so really for this is just a more of a reminder of the why we do it. Because it's easy to forget the why. 
It's easy just to feel like we're, we're running on a treadmill, going nowhere, doing the same old thing, chasing around kids during Sunday school. Will they ever listen? Fortunately, I've been in ministry long enough now, now to know that, that when the students are like talking, interrupting, and just going crazy, and like, oh, rabbits, and just chasing trails, that, that the seeds we're scattering, that the volunteers and I are scattering, and that we're watering, we can trust God that for, for God says, for one man scatters a seed, another person waters it, but it's God who brings the harvest. And so it's not, fortunately, God's still sovereign and in control. And so it's not up to me to bring salvation to these students. And parents, it's not up to you either to save your kids. That's God's business. That's why we pray. And that's why we position them to hear the, God, the gospel. That's why we study the word together. But ultimately, God saves. And so as, as we read these types of things, we're reminded of the why behind it. I, I would say if you're not yet connected in a place where you're able to serve, this is an invitation to, to grow in the next step of your discipleship of becoming more like Christ. This isn't some sort of bait-and-switch thing, well, because we're a nonprofit, we need people to serve. That's, that's part of it. I mean, we can't do it without our volunteers. But we actually have, the majority of our members are serving in some capacity. And so this isn't a strong-arm push to get people to sign up. It's an invitation to say, hey, if you are serving in some capacity, be reminded of why. Our Savior went in the moment of, of great anticipation of his impending death and betrayal and humbled himself and served. So a couple takeaways for us this morning and we'll wrap up. The first thing is this. Jesus never calls us to do anything that he himself was not willing to do. Jesus never calls us to do anything that he himself was not willing to do. He's not an unfair savior. He's not saying, hey, do as I say, not as I do. He's saying, hey, I've gone before you. And even better, I've given you my spirit to empower you. And, and I've given testimony of fellow brothers and sisters in the faith to remind you and encourage you along the way. Part of the reasons we gather and do things like Sunday school and community group is not to be good people, but to be reminded. I don't know about you, I forget. And that's not new to like our generation. The people of Israel would forget. Throughout the Psalms, the Psalms are like, hey, remember, remember, remember. We forget. And so coming together with fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, being reminded of God's good news through song and through prayer, through the Lord's Supper, through serving sacrificially, through blessing our community, through the proclamation of the Word. It's a way for us to cling to the hope that we have in Christ. Even if you served really, really good this morning, that's not why God loves you. God loves you because He chose to. And so you can live in that comfort knowing that, hey, where you are, he meets you. And where you're going, he has to chart it out. And so what's the invitation to the next step God's calling you to this morning? The second thing is we must be washed by Jesus in order to be truly clean. Quit trying to fix yourself before you come to Christ. That's not necessary. Maybe you find yourself in a place where you realize, man, if there is a God and Jesus is the Savior, then I realize that I've offended God by my life and I want to be forgiven, but there's no way He would have me the way I am. That's a lie from the devil. If you're here and you know that you need to know God and be forgiven by Christ, simply cry out, help. And He answers that prayer. 
And in fact, that's why we have people standing along the sides when we pray into the Lord's Supper, rather coming to take a reminder of God's sacrifice through His Son Jesus, take on of Christ, and let one of our prayer leaders pray with you to know Him. That might be the next step because you're not going to clean yourself up, friend. The way to salvation is not from within. It's a loving and powerful God reaching in to that which is broken and bringing restoration and power. Your response is, please, yes. Third thing is this. Discipleship is not merely the transfer of information. Jesus taught a lot about the things of God. The students were about to start going through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is expounding upon the law. And as he goes talking about the law and expounds upon that, he's teaching a lot of information. So information is good. We're an information-dense church. We like information. We like knowledge. We, we like studying. We believe it matters, which is good. But d- discipleship cannot be merely just the transfer of information. The discipler must model and explain and then set the disciple free to go and do likewise. We, we teach and then we show and we take along and we do life and then we set free and liberate to let them then go and begin to follow Jesus in obedience to His Word. Another thing is, as a follower of Jesus, serving is not an option, it's implied. Listen, I, I want to say something to all the mamas out there. Especially those of you who still have kiddos at home. Those of you who used to have kids at home, you can relate. Oftentimes, being a mom is an invisible job. It's taken for granted. You're, you're, you kind of lose kind of this identity and all that kind of stuff. And, and then you wonder what the purpose and meaning is of all of this. And yes, I make children cry. But you're wondering, what, where, where is all this meaning in this? Christ meets you in that moment of isolation. Christ meets you in that moment of feeling like, where do I even fit? Maybe Jesus in that moment is inviting you, one, to trust in Christ and to hope in Him, and maybe to have a candid conversation with your husband. But in that moment, as you're serving, that's a huge service. The dividends that are rewarded for decades and and generations to come through mom and dad taking time to prioritize investing in their own kids brings dividends that are promised and backed by the Word of God. Even as broken as we are in our efforts in doing that. Amen? Amen. I have a good friend, he's, he's our coach, Jim, and he says, oftentimes he tells parents, set up a college fund and a counseling fund for your children. Because broken people raising other broken people with eyes set upon the one who fixes broken things is our only hope. But serving isn't an option. We were called to serve. Our master serves. It doesn't mean you can't have any nice things. I'm not advocating you go home and turn the heater off and like, well, suffering people don't have heaters. Have a heater. What I'm saying, though, is our primary aim isn't to avoid discomfort Our primary aim is to follow Jesus. Our primary aim is not so that we can attain worldly status. Our primary aim is that we might identify with the ultimate one through our service. And finally, we must remember the service of Jesus, even in view of His enemies, as we serve in order to keep a right heart and mind. 
The why behind our service, the the why behind our long-suffering and our patience and our kindness and our joy and our second, third, fourth, sixth chances, hundredth chances are not based upon, wow, we've really grown a lot, but because Christ is that patient with us. In the same way that He serves us, not merely just by washing feet, not just through the death and resurrection, big one, but through His continual empowering and reminder of our call not to come and seek to be served, but to serve. And the only way you can serve in a way that is actually honoring to God is to first trust in the way that He has first served you through His Son, Jesus. So rather than just toiling, trying to work to make yourself right with God, trust that Jesus is the one that makes you right, and your response is, yes, help. Maybe you're here this morning and need to just be reminded of the why behind our serving. That actually when you're rocking those babies, you might be giving mom and dad an opportunity to come hear a message that will bring a healing breath of hope into their marriage or into their home. Or, or, or an opportunity for a single mama to come and be encouraged and helped along the way. Or an opportunity for someone to hear the gospel for the first time. When you're chasing around three years old, there might be a supernatural patience that comes over you because if they were your child, you would shake them really hard. But God calms you and you just sow the seed. Our job is to sow seed, water the seed. God brings the harvest as we serve to create environments for people to engage and meet with Jesus. Maybe you help set up or tear down in here when you're folding chairs. I see some of you almost like, you know, monks over there just having to put these chairs up afterwards. Hey, Christ is ministering to you. So if you ever get bitter about stacking chairs, just remember the cross. Stacking chairs is better. Stacking chairs is better. As we enter into this Advent season, rather than seeking how we might be best served or what it is that we might be able to consume or how we can break microphones, perhaps we can ask, Lord, what are you inviting to me, me to next? How are you inviting me to serve and to join you in that humility? How can I find comfort in the fact that I'm not always comfortable, I'm not always held in high regard, and I'm not always safe and secure? Help me. Let's pray.